We are continuing this morning with our series uh, through the book of Romans. We come to about the middle of the fourth chapter of Romans this morning, in which Paul is talking about the example of Abraham. Okay, so let us turn this morning to Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And if you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The inerrant word of God reads as follows. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking to us clearly through your word. Thank you for showing us that faith in your work makes us offspring of Abraham, granting us reconciliation with God the Father. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning the truth of being made right with you through faith before a holy God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I've titled the message, Abraham's Offspring Through Faith. Abraham's Offspring Through Faith. We're going to see in this text... As the Word of God points out, they are two offspring. They are the offspring of Abraham, which in essence we will see means that those of the offspring of Abraham are the offspring of God, are the children of God. And then there's only one other option, and that is children of the devil, children of wrath. That's the only two options that Scripture gives us. So as we think about this passage this morning, my friends, my brothers and sisters, let us consider, are we children of Abraham or are we children of the devil? There is no third option. Last time, Paul pointed us to Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish nation. He's using Abraham as an example that justification, being right before God, only comes through faith. As Paul is building that case, he is pointing the people that are familiar with Abraham to say, look, I'm going to show you a premier example of our patriarch, of how he was made right before God through faith and not through anything that he did. So that faith is what made Abraham before God, believing God, not circumcision, not any other works. 
And the overarching theme here in chapter 4 is that as Abraham's justification came by faith, that same way of becoming right before God would be necessarily the same way that others would be made right before God, justified by faith. Now, let us review. What does justification mean? Don't be intimidated by this term, theologically speaking. Justification is a legal declaration before God of being in good standing. Just as when we come before a judge in the court and the fine has been paid or the fixes ticket has been fixed, you become cleared. You become in good standing before the law. In similar fashion, going from guilty to not guilty, from a condemned state to a saved state, is what we require before God in order to be cleared before him. And Paul is driving home this point that true justification, being made right before God, only comes by faith and is not attainable by human merit. Now, the question to us today is, are we right before God? Have we been justified before God? Are you justified before the God of the universe? The truth is that most people are not. Jesus said that the road that leads to eternal life is narrow and only few enter through it. But that the path to destruction is wide and many go in by it. So the default position of all of us is to not be justified before God. An intervention by God needs to happen in order for us to be justified. Faith in Christ, then, faith in the perfect work of Jesus, has to be given to us, has to be credited to us, in order for us to be right before God. Now, if we think about this question this morning of whether you are justified before God, if your mind and your heart tries to put anything else other than the righteousness of Christ and trusting in Him, if it comes to mind, well, you know, I'm... I've been pretty good, or I'm not as bad as my friends, or I've been raised with parents or grandparents that are Christians. That is the wrong answer, and that should be a warning for us. If the question of are we justified before God today is not because I trust in Jesus and in his perfect work, we are probably not saved So then what is Paul's intent in this portion of the letter? I always like to include this little snippet of what we can look forward to in this passage. So Paul is saying that there is a guarantee to those who follow Abraham's example of faith. And that guarantee is that if we follow Abraham's example of faith, we are offspring of Abraham. We are part of the posterity of Abraham. So then, what does it mean to be part of the offspring of Abraham? Well, biblically speaking, that means that we are adopted into the family of God and we are declared righteous before him. So today, then, we will see two main ideas. The first main idea we're going to see is that the promise of God to Abraham is through faith, through faith. 
And the second main idea we will see is that the promise of God to Abraham did not depend on Abraham, but it depended upon God's faithfulness. So let us take a look then at the first main idea about the promise of God to Abraham being through faith. Our first verse in the passage today, verse 13, reads as follows. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That statement, righteousness of faith, is when God declares someone in good moral standing based on the person's belief in the promises of God. Righteousness of faith. In studying this passage this week, I was conversing with my wife to try to find an analogy of what it means to believe in God's promises. And I could think of multiple times when my children have been anxious or angry or worried about something. And when they become worried or they become anxious, it could be something that I know I can make better for them or that I know for a fact is going to be okay. And one thing I tell my daughter often is, don't worry, no te preocupes, it's going to be fine. Now, oftentimes my daughter has trouble trusting that it is going to be fine. And I know that it's going to be fine because it's something that I can physically do and fix. Or if she lost a toy, I know where it is, whatever it may be. And often when I'm putting her to bed and she says, okay, daddy, I believe that it's going to be fine. And she can rest and she can relax. I was telling my wife, that trust of my child lets me understand that my child believes me. And hence, we get a little glimpse of what it is when God tells us a promise and we can say, okay, Lord, I trust that you are going to come through or that your promise is true and that I don't have to worry about that. Believing the promise of God. And by believing that promise of God, we are granted righteousness by faith. Not by doing something, but by simply believing what God is promising. So let us recap. What was the promise to Abraham that he believed? We saw that last week, but let's review that. Genesis 15, verses 46. And behold, the word of God, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Let's stop there for a second. Abraham is thinking, I have no sons. I have no family. I'm going to have to give my inheritance and I'm going to have to pass the baton to somebody who's really not related to me. It's just somebody in my household. That's his worry. So then God, it says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. So against all odds, when Abraham was basically had resigned himself to say, okay, this is the way it is. I have no family, no, no sons. And this person shall be my heir. 
God steps in and says, no. Not only are you going to have a son, I'm going to give you a whole nation. And not only a whole nation, I'm going to make you father of many nations. And it says that Abraham believed what the Lord told him. And that belief was credited to him as righteousness before God. Okay? So then who is that promise for? That promise is for Abraham. However, for the first time in this chapter, Paul not only maintains that that promise is only for Abraham, but now he says that that promise is also for the offspring of Abraham, for the descendants of Abraham. So who are the descendants of Abraham? If this promise applies to the descendants of Abraham, who are the descendants of Abraham? To the Jewish mind, this is a no-brainer. To the Jewish folks, they took much pride in being descendants of Abraham, the chosen people of God. In order to illustrate this, we're going to go to John chapter 8, in which Jesus is having this discussion with the religious Jews, with the Pharisees. We're going to start at verse 39 through 42 and then verse 44. It reads as follows. This is Jesus and the, and the Jewish people going back and forth there, having a, a debate. They answered Jesus. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works, of, the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I come from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What are some takeaways that we take from the commentary that Jesus gives about the descendants of Abraham and his discussion back and forth with the Pharisees? First, we see that the Pharisees believe the obvious, that they were children of Abraham according to their genealogy. Now, at face value, that's true. They were descendants of Abraham. They're the children of Israel, right? But then it goes from the plain known facts that are indisputable to more controversial claims now. Jesus makes it known that being a Jew by genealogy does not necessarily mean that they are true descendants of Abraham according to God's promise. And that's where now he's stepping on their toes. We further see that being a true descendant of Abraham is equated with being a child of God. That's again a non-controversial statement. The uh, the Pharisees made that statement, and Jesus actually didn't rebut that, right? Yeah. If you are a descendant of Abraham, according to the promise, you are a child of God. He says, God is our father. 
That's not disputable, right? If you are a child of Abraham, you are a child of God, spiritually speaking. So then there is only two options of who our spiritual father is. We are either a child of God, being a descendant of Abraham, or we are a child of the devil. That natural condition of all human beings is further expressed in Ephesians chapter 2, in which we are told that the natural default position of everyone, when we start off right out of the back, right out of the box, is being children of the devil, of the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath. Let's read that passage, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So then, the promise of God is a blessing to Abraham and his true descendants. That is, to his heirs, to the ones that will receive the inheritance. So who are those descendants to whom the promise is applied to them? It's not only applied to Abraham, but it says to his descendants. And now we've seen that his descendants are not necessarily those that can claim genealogy and can prove it. Because those were the religious folks of Jesus' time. And inevitably, those are part of the audience that Paul is writing to in the Church of Rome. So let us explore then. Romans 4.14, the next verse reads, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise void. Let us consider for a second. If a wealthy father drafts a will in which he leaves his inheritance to his son and his daughter, that it's in itself a promise, if you will, that once the father dies, that inheritance will legally become his children's. Now, as that inheritance is given and executed accordingly, when the dead dies, the children are recipients of the inheritance of their dad by the fact that they are their children, that they are his children. There is no such thing as the children having to work for that inheritance. Right? Just for the fact that they are children, they are inheritors. They receive what is due to them. If it was something that they had to earn, it would not be an inheritance. Right? So it says here, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, that means, the sense that is being used here, if those who are under the law and keep the law, the ones to receive the inheritance of Abraham, then they would be earning it, wouldn't they? And they wouldn't be receiving it according to the promise of God. It would not be possible for those who are under the law and keeping the law. That's not an option because... There's no such thing as someone being able to adhere to the law. That's the sense that is being used here. To those that are keeping the law. That's not possible. They are not able to keep the law of God perfectly. But even if, if that were theoretically possible, 
such a person would then have no need of an inheritance of righteousness because they would be earning it on their own merit. And therefore, they wouldn't need any promise of God giving them that inheritance by faith. It would make faith not needed and the promise of God would be invalidated. If they can earn it, why would God give it to them? So then the key then, the promise of God to Abraham and the promise of God to us today is effectuated by faith, by believing in the promises of God because there is no human way to attain that righteousness. Next verse, 415, reads as follows. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, this verse, I've often heard it just picked out by itself. And somebody can say, aha, see, if somebody doesn't know about the law, if somebody doesn't have the moral law, then there's no way they could be convicted of sin. Now, I will submit to you, that is not what that verse means. And I tell you why. If someone is not aware of the specific moral law, the Ten Commandments, as they are revealed to us by Moses in the scriptures, it does not mean that they are without sin. We already saw that in the book of Romans itself in chapter 2. We were told that God has written his law in the hearts of men. The men rebel against the law of God and his commandments, that we suppress the truth of God, that even though we have created order for us to realize that there is a creator, the heart of man refuses that truth, suppresses that truth, and we exchange the creator for the creation. And from there on, we go on and sin away and rebel and become idolaters. We see that in Romans chapter 2, specifically verse 12. So we know that the ones that perish, as we learn in Romans chapter 2, that they will perish without the law. Not because they were not sinners, but because they were sinners and they still rebelled and suppressed the truth of God that was available to them. So then, a better way to understand this verse, rather than to say, if somebody doesn't know the law or if they, doesn't, if they don't have the moral law, then they really are not sinners. That's not so. A better way to see that then is that the law shows us that we cannot keep it. And because God is righteous, his law has a consequence if we break it. That is, the righteous wrath of God comes down on the sinner. Right? The law brings wrath because we cannot keep it. And the just punishment is the wrath of God. And then we see then that where there is no law, if someone is not aware of the specific commandments of God, what could happen is that one may not be convicted of a specific sin. Later we're going to see that in Romans 7, but I'll point one verse out right now. Romans 7, verse 7. It says, What shall we say? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See that? So Paul says, not that I didn't sin, but I wouldn't know like, not to covet until I saw it there. And then I discovered that, guess what? I am coveting. So verse 16 reads as follows. That is why it depends on faith. 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So since God's promise cannot be obtained through human merit, but only by faith, the promise of God to his people rests on grace. Grace. Let us be reminded, what is grace? I have it here in the notes so we don't forget. Grace is unmerited favor. Something you didn't earn. God is giving us what we don't deserve. He gives us grace. And that's a reminder of the goodness of God. Something we don't deserve, we cannot earn, and yet He gives it to us without us meriting it. So that grace, Paul says, is guaranteed to the children of Abraham, his fellow heirs, the recipients of the inheritance of God. If we are children of Abraham, that righteousness that was given to Abraham, that inheritance is also given to us. So then the question returns, okay, so who are the real children of Abraham then? If Jesus made it known that not necessarily being a descendant of the bloodline of Abraham makes you a child of Abraham, then who is? Paul tells us that it's not only those who the law was given to, that are believers in Christ, right? Because in the Church of Rome, there's obviously Jewish folks who are believers in Christ. But Paul says, it's also to those who are not of the genealogy of Abraham, but who have the faith that Abraham has. So here lies the key. If we have faith of believing the promises of God as Abraham believed, then we are children of Abraham. And Paul says to the people at Rome, that Abraham is the father of us all. He's talking to a church. That means that whoever is in that church context, Jew and non-Jew, Paul says, if you are a believer, you are a children. You are a child of Abraham. And incidentally, Paul falls into those two groups. He is a Jew by genealogy, and he's a believer in the faith of Abraham. So now let us go back to John chapter 8, to verses 56 through 59. This is Jesus, again, talking to the Pharisees. It says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Stop there for a second. So Jesus is acknowledging that, yes, Abraham may be your father, right, according to your bloodline, yes. Right? But yet, there's a paradox. It doesn't necessarily mean that he is your father spiritually. In other words, your true father in the faith. Okay? So your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So then, the promise of God is not only that they will be descendants and that they will inherit a certain land. But the ultimate promise to Abraham is of a specific descendant. 
Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, God Almighty in the flesh, entering his own creation to save sinners that otherwise would be lost. That is the descendant that ultimately is promised through Abraham. Not only that, but the ultimate promised land is the land that is yet to come. The new heavens and the new earth in the new creation of God when Jesus returns. The promise of God to Abraham doesn't stop in this world. It is looking to something much, much bigger ahead. And we see in this passage in John chapter 8 where Jesus is talking about Abraham and providing the commentary of what it means to be a child of Abraham. We are told that Jesus said clearly that Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. Now, somehow, we don't know how. There's theories of how God revealed that to Abraham. I'm not going to make any conjectures here. But we know that Jesus said that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. What does that mean? When they asked Jesus, what do you mean? You're not even 50 years old. How do you say that Abraham saw your day and he rejoiced? To that, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And in saying that, Jesus is making a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, ego imi. Jesus is saying, not only am I putting above my place above Abraham, but Jesus is putting himself in the very place of God Almighty. Now, the Jewish folks, they understood they understood what that meant. Because it says that as soon as Jesus said that, that they grabbed stones and they were going to stone him. Now, why? Because they understood that Jesus was making claim to the very divinity name. That Jesus was saying, I am that I am. And the penalty for making claim to the deity to Yahweh was, you shall be stoned to death. You see that? So Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, putting himself not only at par level with Abraham, but above that in the place of God Almighty. And the Pharisees didn't like it because they are now realizing that Jesus is telling them, you're actually not true children of Abraham. You are not part of the inheritance of Abraham, and you're lost. So the true children of Abraham, then, are those who believe in what Abraham looked forward to, the coming of Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. That is the gospel message that Paul is now preaching to the church at Rome, who was composed of both Jews and Gentiles, that if they are in Christ, they are heirs. They have an inheritance that God has given them based on their trust in Christ. We can see that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, and then verse 29, it reads as follows. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham. Do you belong to Christ this morning? If you do, it's because of nothing that you did. It's because God had grace. He gave you unmerited favor that while we were yet sinners, He died for us and gave us what we didn't deserve. If you are Christ's. Now, there may be some that may not be sure. I may be Christ. I don't know. And it, I would say that's a fair place to be because it's better to think that you are and you're not, right? If you're not sure, cry out to God. Tell Him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Acknowledge that God is holy and that you need forgiveness of your sins because we are not holy. And that no amount of goodness that we could ever do can ever give us the righteousness that we need to be right with God. That is, to be part of the inheritance of Abraham. There's nothing we could do but ask for mercy and grace. And we are promised that all those who come to God with a contrite heart, with a repentant heart, God will never turn away. So then the second main idea of this passage is there in the last verse, that the promises of God did not depend on Abraham. Romans 4, 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So that promise that God gave Abraham did not depend upon Abraham. When it says, I have made you the father of many nations, that is a promise that is a promise that Abraham will be the father, not primarily of one nation, but of many nations. And that promise was given under the following circumstances. First, we see that God says to Abraham, I have made you. Now, note that was not the case yet. But God was speaking as though it was already a done deal. That is a reminder to us that when God promises that the dead shall rise, that is a done deal. The dead will rise. Those that are in Christ into everlasting life. Those that are not in Christ into everlasting destruction. Secondly, we see in that promise the circumstance given is in the presence of the God in whom he believed. Although nothing had yet happened, Abraham believed. The first step to that promise coming true was that Abraham needed to have a son, Isaac. And Abraham, he was, what, almost 100 years old, and so was Sarah. In other words, that's an impossibility, humanly speaking. So Abraham could have said, you know what, this, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm just being real here. That's not going to happen. Against all odds, we are told that Abraham believed God. Do you believe the promises of God today? Like, oh, no, I mean, let's be real. 
my son, my daughter, my parents, my friend, they are far from the reach of God. They're lost. That may be true. But do you believe that the word of God, that the gospel has the power to save those who hear? Do we believe the promise of God? Another part of the circumstance under which that promise was given, it says that Abraham believed God, who is the one who gives life to the dead. The God making that promise to Abraham is the God that can literally turn a dead person into a live person. Not only did he say it, but he demonstrated it. God is the God who does the impossible. Now, what is the biggest impossibility, physically speaking, for the human being? And what is perhaps one of our biggest fears in humanity in general? Death, physical death. And it is an impossibility that really haunts us, right? Yet, we are told that God gives life to the dead. This is ultimately expressed in the person and the physical body of Jesus. He died physically, yet was resurrected from the dead. That is a promise we have from God. In speaking to Martha, when Lazarus had died, we see the following words from Jesus, starting in John 11, 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? My friends, that same question is asked of us this morning. Do you believe the promise of Jesus that if you believe in him, even though you die, you will live? Do you believe that? Some of us have seen a dead body. Do you believe that dead body is going to rise? Do you believe that? The other circumstance in which this promise was given to Abraham was that Abraham believed God, who is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. We are told in the Bible that God created all of creation, all the cosmos, ex nihilo. That means from nothing. If a builder is going to build something, he needs materials to build. We are told that God is so powerful and mighty that when he spoke the cosmos into creation, it was sufficient for him to speak it and it happened. The God who creates something into existence from nothing. More specifically, God created a great nation, Israel, out of nothing. Abraham was a nobody. He was a pagan. And also, God creates a new creation out of each one of us who believe in Christ and in the gospel. So then, under those circumstances, the promise of God was given to Abraham. We see how that promise is not only for Abraham, but to his descendants. The true descendants of Abraham are not only those that are genealogically related to Abraham, but those who believe the promises of God. 
So what is keeping us then from sometimes or always from not believing the promises of God? I will suggest to you that many times not trusting the promises of God is because we are afraid that we're going to lose something. How foolish is that? Abraham was put to the test to see if he indeed believed God. And it was really for our benefit and example. Abraham proved his faith by genuine obedience. First, when he was told to obey the commandment of circumcision. Abraham obeyed. But then later, perhaps, one of the biggest tests for Abraham was to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. Now, at that point, Abraham could say, you know what? Nah, that's Lord, that's like going too far. I can't do that. But we are told in that passage that Abraham believed God, a God who can give life to the dead. And Abraham went through with the promise of God that even if, even if he had to sacrifice his son, he believed that God has the power to bring his son back to life. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had. So then our obedience to God <clears throat> may look shaky because we think we have too much to lose if we surrender our will to God's will. And this morning we are reminded of the promise of God to trust in Christ, to rejoice in the promise of Jesus to have eternal life if we believe in him, even though we may die. And then, as Abraham did, to become a child of God. If we are descendants of Abraham, we will become adopted into the family of God. Being a descendant of Abraham is one and the same of being a child of God. So let us trust in the promise of the gospel today to acknowledge that God is holy. To repent of our sin, knowing that we need a forgiveness of our sins, to believe in Christ, in his life, his death, his resurrection. And as a result, to prove that we have genuine faith by obeying as Abraham obeyed God because he believed God and that belief was counted to him as righteousness. May that be the case for us this morning that we believe God, that we believe in Christ and that belief will be counted to us as righteousness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the passage this morning that reminds us the faith that Abraham had was nothing that he merited, but it was everything that you gave him. You gave him faith, you gave him a promise, and you fulfilled that, Lord. In the same way, remind us that you have given us the promise of eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ. He has come into this world. He has lived a perfect life that we cannot live. He has died a death that we deserved. And by trusting in him, his perfection, his righteousness is attributed to us. Thank you, Father, for that promise. May we believe that this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.